there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. God, just thank you that we're able to come today and be in community together um, and just experience your kindness. Um, And I just pray that we can take that with us um, into the week for ourselves and for the people that we encounter. Um, In your name, amen. So we're looking at a text today that everyone should be pretty familiar with. Um, Whether you grew up in Christian circles or not, this is something that you've heard at least some variation of. So it doesn't take a whole lot of introduction. So we're just going to dive right in. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of talk about (coughs) what the first century Jewish audience would have heard um, when Jesus was saying these words. So we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just like a small portion of it, in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 31. (coughs) So it says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So, again, this is something that we've all heard. (laughs) At least at some point in our life, um, be it just like a platitude that we talk about, Um, in passing, or you've read the scripture, you've heard sermons on this scripture, and um, to be totally honest, I have hated this passage for a very long time, and so I decided to preach on it, because why not? Um, You know, (laughs) Um, but yes, I don't like um, kind of what this passage says at face value, Uh, so I was just kind of curious, like, what would the first century audience have heard? Um, because they don't have our 21st century platitudes, they didn't live our experience, theirs would have been different. So what would they have heard in hearing Jesus say these words or reading this book um, that Matthew wrote? And this first portion isn't talking about personal retribution. They're not saying like if someone stabs you in the eye, stab them back. Uh, This is actually a law that was put in place in the book of Exodus. Um, You have that passage on your bulletin in 21 and 24. It's just literally the law. (laughs) It states it for you. So it was established to kind of prevent like a vigilante system of justice um, that just like a never-ending cycle of violence back and forth. And it's just saying if someone harms you in some way, you can go after them through a court of law uh, for payment of that thing. So if they harm your eye, you can go after them through a court of law for payment of the eye. And I don't think this is applied literally. Like I said, they're not like stabbing eyes out. I think it was just a system that was set up of fines to say like this, you're paying this amount or doing this thing for X harm that you caused. And um, so Jesus is saying a a reference to this law, this system that they have in place. And then after that, we kind of get in the weeds a little bit. This is where we get into um, what's kind of a messy text as we discuss it today. And like I said, at face value, it kind of looks like Jesus is encouraging us to stand around and just take abuse. and I've actually heard a lot of sermons taught that way. It's actually not a, an uncommon interpretation of this text. It's just a quick Google of this passage, um, and you'll find numerous theologians and authors saying that Jesus is encouraging us to um, just kind of be passive and sit back and suffer for the sake of suffering and just let God handle it. And um, I don't I don't like that. <laughs> I, I am not the kind of person that's going to sit back and take abuse. And I 
I always felt like I really wasn't a good enough Christian because I, I couldn't just sit back. I have my morals and I have my values and I'm gonna stand up for them no matter the cost, right? And it just seemed kind of like it was counter to this passage. So I spent a lot of my life pretending like it just wasn't there and was like, we'll deal with that later. Uh, maybe, um, we'll just get to it. And um, so it's, there's a one author in an article that I read while I was kind of doing some research that says, Christians must willingly give up their right to retaliation. And it goes on to state that we must willingly suffer just for the sake of suffering. Christ suffered, so therefore we're doing something right if we are suffering. And there were so many, so many articles that said the same exact thing, just in a different way. But looking at this through the lens of a first century Jewish, this first century Jewish audience, I don't think they would have come to the same conclusion. For starters, the Jewish law doesn't encourage us to just sit around, or encourage the Jews to just sit around. If they're witnessing an injustice or abuse on a stranger, they're encouraged to actually step in. Um, and if you're encouraged to step in for a stranger, it kind of seems counter to say, oh no, I'll sit there and just let someone else handle it when I'm the one being abused. I don't think the Jewish audience would have accepted this interpretation either. Um, so that neglecting to step forward for yourself is obviously counter to what is seemingly just a basic Jewish understanding of the law. And then secondly, we also have to look at the culture that they're in, <coughs> right? They're people that live in a space um, and a time and a period that's very different than ours. So what would they have heard in hearing these words? They had laws to follow, of course, and they had a legal system to assist them in circumstances where that was warranted, but there were still some forms of abuse that would have been considered legal. For example, anyone who's considered superior, think Roman soldier, slave owner, husband, parent, um, male, would have been able to basically just exert their power over someone that they deemed inferior by slapping them. And uh, this is a common practice in this culture. They um, would just have to sit there and take it, basically. The law wouldn't have done much for them in a circumstances where there's an imbalance of power, um, specifically in these marginalized groups that Jesus is talking to. So women, children, the poor, foreigners, slaves, Jews. But still, this is abusive and it's degrading and it's dehumanizing and Jesus is recognizing this. His pairing this state, these statements with a common understanding of how the law works is his way of saying, I know we have laws for wrongdoing, but there's things that slip under the rug. And here is how you respond in those situations, in those circumstances, when you're being abused and harmed legally. And so notice that Jesus um, specifically says when you're slapped on the right cheek. So a lot of times I think when we hear this passage talked about, it's just saying when you're hit on one cheek, turn the other. Um, but it's important that we recognize that Jesus specifies which cheek. In this culture, your right hand is used for just about everything. Your left hand is reserved for things that are considered unsanitary or unclean, like blowing your nose, wiping after you go to the bathroom, things like that. Um, even to just gesture with your left hand would have been considered offensive and punishable by law, according to um, a document that we have called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So to be slapped on the right cheek with the right hand would mean that you're backhanding them, which is a way of just basically stating your dominance. Like, to slap someone with the palm of your hand would be equating them as equal. To slap someone with the back of your hand, you're saying, I have some sort of power over you. You are inferior to me. And it's very common for a slave owner to backhand a slave, or a husband to backhand a wife, or a parent to backhand a child. This is something that they would have seen day in and day out. This is something that they have their own experiences with as marginalized people. 
And Jesus is referencing that. Um, we still see this dynamic played out today, right? We don't have Roman soldiers walking our streets backhanding us, but we have police officers that kneel on people's necks. Um, they just for the sake of exerting their power over someone, right? We all know the story of George Floyd, or we have stories like the story of Elijah McClain, who was walking home from a convenience store with headphones in, and a police officer approached him and he never heard them. That police officer choked him, and Elijah died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, apologizing for what he did wrong when he didn't do anything wrong. That police officer was dropped of all charges. He was not convicted for the murder of Elijah McClain. Um, and he choked a man that did not hear him speak just because he had power over him, just because he could. Um, we use sayings like, I can't breathe, to reference police brutality. Jesus is saying being slapped on the right cheek is a reference to abuse by systems of power in their society. This is something that they would have recognized uh, right off the bat because it's common in their society. So again, backhanding someone is a power play, right? It's oppressive, it's degrading, it's dehumanizing. And the expected reaction here is to just drop everything and submit to whatever is being asked of you, whatever be is being said. Fighting back would have been deadly. Um, it would have been a suicide mission to get up and fight back, to slap them back. Um, human nature kind of has us where we're posed for two options. You can either fight back or kind of bow down and be like, okay, whatever, I'll do what you say. But Jesus is saying here, um, no, I think there's a third way. There's another option. You, by turning the other cheek and presenting the other side, you're forcing the person exuding power over you to choose. Do I slap him with the palm of my left hand, or with my right hand, excuse me, or do I use my left hand? Which, again, is considered offensive and would have been punishable for the person slapping with the left hand. And so now they're forced to see your humanity and they're, they're embarrassed because you didn't cower to their power, right? You didn't bow down to them and say, okay, I'll do what you want. You said, no, hit me again. This isn't passive. This isn't just sitting there and taking abuse. It's an act of defiance, but it's nonviolent defiance. Jesus is giving the way to stand up for themselves in the midst of a power imbalance. Jesus is flipping tables of what's expected and he's encouraging his followers to do the same. We talked a lot about flipping tables when we talked about Luke, and here it is again in Matthew. Jesus is intentional about flipping tables, about power imbalance as being unfair, and what doing what you can to stand up in the face of it. The oppressor here has been forced to see the humanity of the person that they're abusing, and they have to face their own shame and their own embarrassment. And the next few verses kind of continue on in the same vein. This is really just a set of examples of how to do this thing the third way um, in the life that they live. So like I said before, we're kind of set up to choose between fight or flight <coughs> and situations like this. And um, it takes some creativity and a lot of thinking to come up with a third way. To, um, I, it's not natural to sit there and be like, oh, if I turn my other cheek and pose that to them, like that puts them in a bind and it shows that I'm not ashamed. I'm not humiliated by this. That's not natural, right? It takes some thinking, it takes some creativity. And Jesus is giving them examples of how to be creative in this way and stand up to fit positions of power. So let's look at the next few examples. In verse 40, I'll read it again. It says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So this second example is set in a court of law. 
So I want to look closely at the pronouns that Jesus is using. He's saying the word you in all of these examples, meaning that he is recognizing that the people he's talking to are not the ones doing the suing. They're not the ones doing the slapping. They're the ones being sued. They're the ones being slapped. They're marginalized. They're poor. They're Jewish in a Roman occupied territory, right? Um, and so they would have understood what this was like. They would have known that um, what it's like to be sued for the clothes off of your back because you have nothing left to give. Uh, but kind of let's look a little more at this matter of being sued for your own clothes. And what does this mean? Where does it come from? So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. They should be in your bulletin for you. It says, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor and don't, do not go into his house to get what is, he is offering as a pledge. Stay outside and let the man to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, don't go to sleep with the pledge in your possession. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord. And then in verse 17 it says, don't deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. And so again, we see here that this person that's being sued is very, very poor, like poorest of the poor levels of poor. They have nothing left to pay back the debt that they owe. And in this society, Rome um, basically has taken these people for everything that they have. They force them into positions of poverty that they can't get out of. They don't have a choice but to take out these loans. Um, and the system is designed to be totally in the favor of the rich and the wealthy of the people suing um, for the, the poor people for the clothes off of their back. So the Jewish law is designed in a way that if you are to go after someone for everything that they have, if you're suing them and all they have to pay you back with is the jacket that they're wearing, you have to give it back to them so that they have something warm to sleep in. Meaning that this is literally it. They've lost their homes, they've lost every thing that they could ever possibly own and all they have left is the clothes on their back. So you have to give it back to them so that they don't freeze to death in their sleep. Um, this person is n in a situation that no one wants to be in, but it unfortunately is a situation that's common. And the Jewish audience would have understood this reference. They would have seen this happen to their friends, their family. It could have happened to them. It's not unheard of in this society. And so Jesus is saying, don't just give them their, your coat. Give them your, sh your shirt, too. Just go ahead and give them everything. That doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> They're taking me for everything I have left and you're asking me to like give them even more. What are you talking about? But put yourself in the shoes of this poor person here. You go into a courtroom, you're being sued for everything that you have left, knowing that the law is in the favor of the person that's suing you, of the rich person. You're not gonna win this battle. There's nothing in your favor. You don't have the money, you can't pay it back. So instead of being humiliated by the fact that you can't pay this back, you have nothing left, they're taking everything from you. You say, oh no, I can do better than that. Here, I'll give you my coat, but yeah, I'm gonna take, take my underwear too. I'll just stand here totally naked. I am going to refuse to be humiliated by this system that is intentionally trying to dehumanize me, that is intentionally trying to shame me just for existing, just because I'm poor in a society that values only the wealthy. It's a stunning protest. It's malicious compliance in a system that can sue someone for the clothes off of their back. In this society, nakedness, the shame of nakedness, doesn't fall on the person that's naked. 
um, in our society, if you walk out naked, like it's on you. You did something <laughs> wrong, right? <laughs> like that's not okay. But in this society, um, to be naked, does, the shame doesn't fall on that person. It falls on everyone that's looking. So if this person is standing in front of a courtroom and just strips naked, everyone else in the room is going to feel the shame and the embarrassment of that. This person is saying, nope, I'm not going to be humiliated by this. You're not going to take my dignity by trying to take everything I have left. Now the shame is on you. Now your dignity has been compromised. Now I am standing here. You are recognizing that I am a human, that I have choices when you thought I had nothing left. I have one choice left. I can use my power, very little power that I have left, to stand my ground and to stand up for myself and force you to see my humanity, my person, my dignity. It's making a big statement, but it's also forcing everyone else in the room to question the system, to see maybe there really is something wrong with a system that allows us to take the clothes off of someone else's back. Maybe this isn't okay. Maybe we can do something different. It's an urge for change. It's yes, standing up to an abusive system with the ultimate goal of change for the oppressor. Our last example is found in verse 41. Um, so let's look at that one more time. Maybe. It says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So again, this is a pretty common platitude that we have today. Um, it's also often stated to go the extra mile meaning go above and beyond to um, win approval or to please a person or a system. And it's kind of seen as a good thing to go the extra mile, right? You're putting, your, you're putting everything, you're going all in, you're doing, working hard, you're doing more than is asked of you. But the first century Jewish audience wouldn't have heard this. They don't have our platitudes. They don't have our understanding of this statement. What they would have heard is one of the legal forms of abuse in the system is that a Roman soldier could ask someone in one of their um, occupied territories to carry their stuff for them. But there were limits. Rome didn't want to like totally humiliate them and make them hate them, but they also wanted to abuse their, their power. So the limit was they could go one mile. Um, and if you're interested, a Roman mile is equivalent to a half mile, just like a fun fact that probably I'm the only one that cares about. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. So, <laughs> so they're, they're forced to carry their stuff for about a, a half of a mile. Um, and anything more than that would be considered illegal. So Jesus is saying here, use the law, maliciously comply, and go above and beyond. Because, I mean, it sucks to have to carry it further, but if you carry it further, that puts the Roman soldier in a position where he's going to get in trouble. He has to either accept that you're carrying further than is asked of you, which is punishable for him, or he has to basically beg you for his stuff back which strips him of his dignity, and now he's the one being shamed in a situation where you are faced with shame, right? It's flipping the tables. It's changing the, that dynamic. So again, forcing them to see your humanity of maybe, maybe just maybe using someone as a pack mule isn't the best choice. This maybe isn't the best system. So Jesus is again demonstrating for us what a life of nonviolence looks like in a world where the reader really would have only known oppression um, and a world where thinking creatively of how to get out of this and how to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with positions of power and oppression would have been hard, um, much like in our society today, right? And he's giving them examples in their worlds. He's showing them a new way rather than returning violence with violence. 
He's showing them creative ways to force the oppressor to see their own humanity. And there's a book written by Walter Wink titled Jesus and Nonviolence that summarizes Jesus's approach um, in this way. And it says, so your first is to seize the moral initiative, find a creative alternative to violence, assert your own human dignity as a person, meet force with ridicule or humor, break the cycle of humiliation, refuse to submit or to accept the inferior position, expose the injustice of the system, take control of power dynamics, shame the oppressor into a repentance, stand your ground, force the powers to make decisions for which they are not prepared, recognize your own power, be willing to suffer rather than to retaliate, cause the oppressor to see you in a new light, deprive the oppressor of a situation where a show of force is effective, be willing to undergo the penalty for breaking unjust laws, and then last, die to the fear of the old order and its rules. Jesus was the very first example of nonviolent resistance. Others go on to follow in his footsteps, like Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. This third way, as Wink calls it, isn't in our human nature, as we've talked about, but people do it. People have done it, and it's brought a lot of change in our world um, and societies that we thought would never see change, <laughs> would never see a freedom from oppression. And we're not there, we're not free from oppression, but we're on our way, we've come a long way, um, through acts of nonviolence, through resistance, through protest. And this can't just be something that we do every once in a while. Our, like I said, our brains don't work in this way. It takes creative creativity. We have to be constantly thinking in this way. We have to live our lives in this way. Jesus is giving practical examples of what it looks like to do this in the first century Jewish world. But what does it look like today? What does it look like for us? Um, and I think we start by listening to stories of people that are doing this. Um, we listen to stories of how we're doing it day in and day out. And I would love to hear some of your examples. What are ways that you're seeing this in your life? What are ways that you're living this out for you? I can go first. Um, so I read an email recently by a teacher in Florida as her response, to, or their response, excuse me, to the don't say gay bill. She sent this, e or they sent this email to parents. It says, dear Florida parent or caretaker, the Florida House of Representatives has recently ruled that classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through th grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students. To be in accordance with this policy, I will no longer be referring to your students with gendered pronouns. All students will be referred to as they or them. I will no longer use a gendered title such as Mr. or Miss or make any reference to my husband or wife in the classroom. From now on, I will be using the non-gendered title Mix. Furthermore, I will be removing all books or instruction which refer to a person being a mother, father, husband, or wife, as these are gendered identities that also may allude to sexual orientation. Needless to say, all books which refer to a character as he or she will also be removed from the classroom. If you have any concerns about this policy, please feel free to contact your local congressperson. Thank you. <laughs> Mix their name. <laughs> so this, I mean, this is a pretty bold, brazen example. Um, but what, what are you seeing in your life? What are you seeing in your schools, in your workplace? I love the response to like sexist or racist jokes being like, oh, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. I didn't get can it. You can you explain, to explain in great detail? Yeah. Yeah. Can you elaborate <laughs> on that point, please? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. like someone says something really like glib that's racist or sexist, just 
is asking them to explain it. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they start saying out loud why they thought it was funny, realizing like, oh, was that inappropriate? Oops. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. person, you know, in, in those situations of, like you said, the kind of shaming, almost mm-hmm. malicious uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> response, resistance. Um, I think, you know, Jesus was combating the typical resistance as always being violent, yes. you know, in, in mm-hmm. that culture, and their idea was, if you, you know, that, that was the answer. I mean, they thought the Messiah was going to be um, a military leader, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when something changes. Mm-hmm. And so videotaping <laughs> yeah. incidents, like I know there's a lot of like Karens that are being <laughs> yeah. and, and and there's actually, you know, been prosecution of yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm thinking of like modern terms like, you know, getting public opinion to recognize when someone is abusing someone else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I've really had, I've really struggled with that because I'm really so good at it. But um, what I've had to learn to do is to, you know. <laughs> but what I've really, really worked to do is that if somebody is mean to me, I intentionally and purposely go out and just be super nice. Like, I would spend as many as, as much as I can pour out on other people right there and here. Mm-hmm. I just have to go be nice to other people, and I just say, "Oh, Satan, you do get forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You do not get forgiveness." Yeah. Another funny thing I do is, some of you know I'm finished with Jesus. Some of you don't know that. When they deny climate change, mm-hmm. we have to balance conversion reactions because they hate to balance equations anyway. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Yeah. It's true. Right. But when they balance a page full of combustion, <laughs> they begin to realize this climate change is a real thing. So that's another just kind of. I love that. Uh, learning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go three times this week, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so that's kind of offsetting, um, you know, the power of boycotts. And sometimes, uh, sometimes 
sometimes that's good because sometimes the, you know, the boycotters are um, irrational. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I, I guess some more modern examples of um, you know, nonviolent resistance, I thought about, I mean, this is several years back now, but um, Bree Newsom is a, an activist who um, she like climbed a pole and oh, um, yeah. ripped off the Confederate flag and she knew she was going to be arrested when she came yep. down from it and, you know, did that, she, you know, she just went with it. She mm -hmm. knew it was going to happen, but, you know, that was so important because, I mean, I was over here in DFW not realizing that there were still government buildings that flew Confederate. that flag. Yeah. And so, you know, that, yeah, it, it raised awareness in a really important way. And, um, well, there's a, been a lot of movement that's come out of that, right, too. Yes, yeah. there has been. Um, but yeah, like we're, even though we do have access to all the information, we, you know, very purposefully, I think, uh, live in our bubble. Don't have it put in front of our faces. Yeah. I think the pandemic, sort of, as far as like individual people go, sort of proved, you know, like the, the one thing that we were asked to do was just be courteous of each other in that time. And <laughs> we couldn't do it. Proved to uh, like a lot of us how many people just can't do that. <laughs> people are mm -hmm. fighting over toilet paper and Costco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the other, the uninformed response is like, oh, there's been such an increase in like police brutality or mm -hmm. those other things. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always been the case. Yeah. It's, just it's not new. Getting more and more aware. Mm -hmm. Well, we had more time on our hands to watch the news. And I think. There was, there was less things happening, so the news wasn't reporting on as many things. Um, and people are starting to realize recording is a form of resistance, yeah. or mm -hmm. make mm -hmm. sure it's documented in any way possible. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, documentation, I think, is a big way. Um, if you have a conversation with your boss and they're violating your rights in some way, I mean, I see stories about this all the time of like, my boss is not giving me a raise because I'm a female, or you know, just different things like that. Um, if you're having this voice-to-voice -voice conversation, documenting in an email, just, hey, here's a recap of our conversation today. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Um, um, to have records to protect yourself, um, but also <coughs> to kind of like read back to them, like, hey, this is what you sounded like today. Are you sure you want to go with that? <laughs> yeah. This is good. I think um, this conversation needs to happen because we can't, learn how to live this way and act this out without thinking about it first and talking about it. And I mean, there's gonna be ways that we try this and it doesn't work, or there's, and there's gonna be ways that we try this and it's super effective. Um, but we're also putting ourselves on the line, right? Like she was arrested, her name was Bree Newsom. Newsom. I can never remember her name, her last name. Um, she was arrested. And the 
person who turned the other cheek probably could have been flogged for defiance, right? But that was a risk that they were willing to take because it was continue to live in the system or push back with what very minuscule amounts of power we have and hopes that we see change, right? So this is a conversation that we need to continue to have um, so that we can live this out, so that we can continue to see change in our world. But of course, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't end with just this like nonviolence resistance statement, right? It, it goes on. And turning, is, turning the tables is fun, fighting back is fun, embarrassing people is fun, <laughs> but that can't be the end. Um, that's not the goal here for Jesus, and it shouldn't be ours either. Well, the goal is long-term change, um, but that requires vision and an alternative. Jesus, yes, is going around um, promoting this new way of living, this new way of doing things, but he's also establishing a community that actually lives it out, um, that's in, that lives in a different way. And the goal here is for the oppressors to change um, by loving them, right? And it's really hard to love someone that hates you. It's really hard to want to care or love people that are violent and oppressive and dangerous and abusive. And I'm not saying love them and like be best friends with them, but we have to love them and recognize <coughs> their humanity and realize that God has the potential to change them, that they have the potential to recognize their own abusive behaviors and be willing to change. If we don't love them and we don't see their humanity, what's the end goal? I'm going to leave us with this last quote um, by Peace Prize laureate Adolfo Perez Escobar. So he says, What's always caught my attention is the attitude of the peace movement in Europe and the United States, where nonviolence is envisioned as the final objective. Nonviolence is not the final objective. Nonviolence is a lifestyle. The final objective is humanity. It's life for all. So when we, we go into this week, and we find the humanity in ourselves. May we find the humanity in those who hate us. May we find the humanity in the ones we love. And may we continue to find ways to live in the third way. Grace and peace be with you. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.